Holland Wilcox acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people joining us today. Hello and welcome back to part two of our episode discussing professional services M&A with Chris Brown and Jason Phillips. Now, last time we uh, did a podcast series, we had a, um, a couple of podcasts focusing on um, M&A deals. And in particular, um, in those, we talked quite a bit about due diligence and uh, what due diligence is, what the process looks like from a lawyer's point of view, um, why it's important, uh, and, and, and how to carry out a successful due diligence. Um, now, in the context of buying or selling or transacting in a professional services firm, uh, Chris, as, as, um, as we would both see, um, there can be a, a variety of different legal structures that a professional services firm might be um, might be running. It could be a corporate structure, it could be a non-corporate structure, it could be um, a partnership, et cetera, et cetera. So when we are approaching a due diligence process from a legal point of view of a professional services firm, what are some of the key uh, issues that turn up? What are some of the key points that we have to be mindful of? Um, and uh, how does what does the process look like? Um, and how might it be different to um, to what you would be doing for any other business? Yeah, sure, Frank. The the I mean, the first point to pick up on your your starting point there was around <clears throat> around structure. And obviously the existing operating structure and you know whether that remains the structure immediately prior to transaction or whether there's a restructure that existing structure if it stays in place through to the point where the business is transacted will obviously inform the the transaction structure how the deal is done so i would say you know there's probably still quite a lot of um you know partnership act old-fashioned professional partnerships out there in this sector and that would sort of lead the transaction to being conducted by way of asset or business or asset um, uh, transfer so a little bit fiddlier um you don't buy the full box and dice but at the same time there's sort of advantages in that the liability the legal liability at least is is left behind but you know probably a, a more difficult transaction to to execute so clearly existing operating structure and how that informs um, uh, the transaction structure will be top of the list for um, due diligence. And then sort of drilling down into the business itself and where we see the risks. Well, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the um, the key person risk. Yeah, these are people, businesses. Very often the goodwill is attached very much to the individuals who, who have created the business and who are driving it forward in the here and now. Um, so we need to make sure that um, we've thoroughly reviewed their contracts and you know, the change of control, the change of ownership doesn't trigger some entitlement. I'm just sort of giving some examples here. Some entitlement to participate in equity, for instance, uh, or an entitlement to a uh, golden parachute payment, probably unlikely in the context of professional services. But I guess more proactively, you know, how are we going to ensure that these people are locked in? Um, you know, if they decide that they're not going to transfer over with the the business. How are we going to ensure that they're not competing against the business, which is probably their right, unless there was some provision in their um, um, contract for services which prevented them or restricted them from from doing so? 
So the contracts of, of uh, key employees and other significant staff are a focus in legal due diligence. Thirdly, claims history and the availability of insurance. So, you know, how are any uh, unknown issues affecting this business which could come back in the future post-completion to, to bite it and to affect and undermine the goodwill that we've acquired? How can they be dealt with? And, you know, is this an issue based on the claims history and the breach history that we've um, 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 seen in due diligence? So finally, um, so th those three issues are very important. Uh, finally, in this sector, um, and also in financial services, wealth management, we see a lot of joint ventures, collaboration agreements and referral arrangements. So they need to be thoroughly due diligence uh, from the purchaser's point of view, because obviously the purchaser will have their own arrangements of that ilk. And, you know, whatever the seller or the target entity has committed to, uh, we need to make sure that they're not completely inconsistent with what the purchaser also has in place. Excellent. So, Chris, I think we're really hitting on four big things there. And the first is structure. Uh, the second is employees and employment agreements. Uh, the third is insurance, very, imp very important in professional services firm. And the fourth is is clients and existing arrangements. Um, and uh, those things are all critical elements of any transaction, but a professional services transaction uh, in particular. And, and um, Jason, you're probably the person actually doing a lot of this. Um, what are some of your uh, observations having been in the common thrust of many deals and many due diligence processes? Uh, well, I very much agree with the key points that Chris has uh, pointed out. How, however, before I go on, and, and we do get engaged to do due diligence, and um, um, but I'd say, you know, if we're acting uh, in, in a transaction role, um, as you'd appreciate, we wouldn't we wouldn't be carrying out the due diligence on the assets we uh, we sell. But due diligence, as far as um, professional services and particularly accounting is concerned, it's a bit like a, a plumber with a leaking tap. It's done very poorly generally speaking. So I just want to point out that uh, that is very much the case that we would see over, over having done transactions for a good part of 25 years. Um, I would generally say that other sectors are much better executed on the due diligence side than, uh, than that of accounting firms or professional services more generally. In regards to the key points that uh, Chris has raised, as I said, I certainly agree with them. I think um, uh, people... Uh, sometimes underestimate the personal goodwill that's attached to senior staff and it is important to review their contracts and it is important to take into consideration that they are typically not a party to the transaction. So um, rights and obligations of both purchaser and vendor are quite different, which no doubt uh, Chris can uh, alleviate, you know, add, add to that. Um, so that's that's important. Um and uh, in understanding the joint venture arrangements and referral arrangements. And this is particularly important in uh, financial planning, but it's linked to accountants as well, because uh, often they are a party to, uh, to those types of arrangements and what rights and obligations apply to each, each one of those parties is, uh, is absolutely vital uh, as part of that process. That's great, Jason. So um, Chris, Jason, we've mentioned, we've mentioned this a couple of times now, but um, that in the context of a professional services firm, um, key person risk is more pronounced and a more important issue uh, than it might be if we were dealing in uh, a different kind of business. So can we just talk through a little bit 
about how that key person risk in the context of a transaction involving a professional services firm uh, is managed. You know, what are some of the legal and commercial strategies that are used, um, you know, to keep a former um, professional services firm principal uh, motivated, motivated to transition their client base and motivated to ensure uh, the success of the post-transaction business. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's a number of things that that buyers will be looking to put in place here to ensure that the selling principles, um, to the extent they're still engaged in the business, particularly those kind of principles, are are as line are as aligned as possible with the success of um, of the of the purchaser group, the expanded purchaser group. So, first and foremost. You know the 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 most most effective tools available are are commercial tools or financial tools. Um, so you know we very often see um, sellers seller principals retaining uh, significant or not insignificant equity stakes uh, in the sold business. Uh, that's probably the most effective form of alignment, particularly if there's a check waiting for them at the end of a sort of two or three year period. Um, you know, to validate the growth and and to um, reward them for obviously sensible, hopefully sensible growth of the of the business. Um, allied to that are so-called earnouts or retentions, or rise fall arrangements, which also serve a similar um, uh, purpose. You know, they are there to uh, within reason and within sensible bounds keep the um, uh, the the selling principle focused on the financial health. Of the business, but also um, moderate or decent growth uh, in the in the short to to medium term. So those, I mean, those financial um, tools are very often there as an incentive, but also potentially as a as a stick, as a carrot and stick, and that's the sort of retention component of effectively holding back some of the consideration, uh, and that's quite often used as security for uh, warranties. Uh, for example, or as security for uh, tacit security, if you like, for compliance with the restraints, which brings me conveniently to restraints. So restraints or or non-competes, non-solicits, uh, non-interference provisions are also key. Uh, and it's an important part of our role uh, when we're acting for buyers to ensure that sellers don't just sort of nip around the corner after they've taken a sort of decent sized holiday or sabbatical and rehang the shingle and start going had to have with the business that they've sold to um, to our client, the buyer in this case. Excellent. And um, what about you, Jason? Well, we would certainly see similar uh, scenarios. Restraints are important, and how you structure them commercially uh, is you know is open to whether you're the purchaser and obviously the, the the vendor. If you're the if you're the purchaser, you do want to make sure that uh, the restraints are uh, um, addressed, and the vendor acts uh, accordingly and there may be some commercial machinations to in the contracts that would uh, require the vendor to acquire back those fees if they choose to service them within the restraint period um, you know conversely if people are um, expecting to be paid a, a, an amount outstanding then um, you'd expect that uh, the full terms including the restraints to apply and if they weren't uh, if the contract wasn't to be honored the payments weren't going to be paid, then some of those terms, including the restraints, may may vary. So they're the sort of things that you'd want to uh, implement as a commercial ar ar arrangement. Um, 
uh, and, and certainly a focus on maintaining that key person. These, those key person risks are attached to the, to the business. Um, now going forward, as I mentioned, prices uh, or values have increased as well. Just one thing that uh, Chris uh, noted upon on uh, rise and falls. Um, the, the provision of rise, or rise provisions are not as frequent over the last 12 to 18 months I've noticed. There's, there's certainly falls, but the ability to get a, a, an upside on, uh, on an overall consideration is becoming um, is becoming harder for vendors. Um, often they may receive bonus arrangements as part of an ongoing consultancy to tie them into the business um, as, uh, as employees uh, for a period. Um, but often um, uh, it's, it's limited to uh, fall provisions. So if you don't achieve your, your warranted revenue target, then some of the consideration that may have been withheld on, on completion won't be paid or a pro rata of that won't be paid uh, going forward. That's great insight um, from both of you. And I, I imagine this would be one of the elements of a deal that would be um, uh, the most hotly negotiated and, and contested um, and um, uh, that would really uh, make or break a deal. So, um, so no, that's been, uh, both of you have made some excellent points there. Thank you very much. Um, so moving away, we've talked a lot about some of the um, some of the hard legal and tax issues um, that you would um, confront and deal with and try and manage in a deal like this. Um, what I'd like us to sort of talk about um, as we sort of close out this this session is, uh, you know, both of you have have done um, lots of deals involving professional services firms, um, and oftentimes with those firms, you've gone on to um, to assist and to advise them after the transaction has happened um, and they've become long-standing clients. So just from your observation and from your experience, um, you know, what are some of the key things that have made um, successful transactions successful? And what are some of the issues that have made less, less successful transactions turn out the way that they did? Sure. Um, I, I think uh, one, one of the key aspects of any transaction is communication between the parties. And, and that, I mean, people talk about uh, cultural alignment and the like, but it, it really comes down to how do you communicate um, between buyer and seller? And if that's, if the communication's open um, and transparent and, 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 and sometimes frank um, uh, as, uh, as it should be, um, then typically we, you would have uh, naturally a cultural alignment between buyer and seller. And that, it, that, that it, it helps going forward. It helps in the transition. It helps when uh, areas of disagreement and sometimes they arise. It's, you, you can't, uh, it'd be foolish to suggest that you'd, you'd never disagree. Um, so uh, that those, those aspects are better managed when there is open communication through the process prior to executing a transaction. And I think that's really quite important to, to get that alignment and not, if you're a purchaser, not be afraid to um, show the, the vendor that there may be changes, but to actually justify and, and uh, demonstrate why those changes could be better, uh, could be beneficial for the vendor's clients and their staff and, and for them themselves if they're continuing to work uh, in the business. So, 
um, that's important. Um, you know, it's just springing changes on on someone after the deal's been done often creates a lot of tension unnecessarily in my uh, in my experience. Excellent. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I totally agree agree with all that. I mean, you, you said at the the top, Frank. Um, you know, we've we've each gone on to advise the buyer or the the seller, but that's likely the buyer given the sort of continuity piece. Um, you know, after the deal has been done. Um, the preferred situation is not to have to advise them on the sale and purchase agreement, because if we don't get that out of the filing cabinet, that means that it's been successful and uh, everything's gone according to plan. So that's I mean, that's certainly the hope on every transaction. And we've got quite a good strike rate on that on that front. Um, but look, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think you can. Uh, Jason touched on the cultural alignment piece. Um and maybe played it down a little bit. So maybe what I'm about to say doesn't have anything to do with cultural alignment. Maybe it's more um, do your soft due diligence. You know, um, if and, and quite often this is probably overlooked because someone selling their business perhaps won't be in the business in two or three years' time. They are retiring. So the cynical part of me, we might need to to expand what I'm about to say from the podcast record. But the cynical part of me. Um, probably thinks, well, why, why would they really care what happens in two or three years' time? But I think a lot of sellers do care. Um, but a lot of people, probably because there's a process and they sort of deliver themselves up to advisors like me and Jason, sort of, in a way, take leave of the whole judgment piece around, am I selling this business to the right person? Can I live with this person for the next two to three years during the earnout? Am I happy delivering my staff up to this person? Um, would I go into business with this person? Perhaps not the best analogy, but would I go into business with this person if I was starting from scratch? Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, that's that's a sort of cultural alignment issue, but it's also a personality issue and it's also a soft due diligence issue. And I think the deals which have gone quite well um, or have gone very well have been those where whilst we have different personalities on each side of the table, um, they both have respect for each other and the way in which they've sort of owned and operated their businesses and they end up actually working quite well with each other, you know, admittedly for the most part in the short to medium term whilst the previous owner is is transitioning out of the business. I would just add to that, Frank, in the sense that uh, uh, Chris came from it from a from a vendor's perspective and it's absolutely vital that the vendor needs to um, appreciate what uh, what the the business or the purchaser what their operations are and how they approach and engage with clients. But at the same time as a purchaser, the same amount of effort needs in the soft skills and the soft due diligence um, uh, needs to be applied to the vendor because, um, you know, from my experience, uh, really dealing with a vendor, uh, particularly a sole practitioner, uh, is looking through the mirror to their clients. It's looking through um, the looking glass, if you'd like, to see, well, if, if the vendor carries on a certain way, it's more likely that their clients will engage in a certain way as well. And from a purchaser's perspective, that's important, that the clients engage with the purchaser in, in a way that fits with the purchaser's, purchaser's objectives. Well, that's... Um all very important uh, insight there. And uh, we always say, whether it's in our business at Hall & Wilcox or in Jason's, that um, it is very much a relationship business um, and it is dependent on the relationships that we have as a partner group. Um, and it's our, our collective success uh, that really matters. And, and I think collectively we've recorded a very successful podcast um, today. So 
my very sincere thanks to to Jason as our um, as our special guest uh, for sharing uh, taking the time and sharing his insight with us today and and um, with my very esteemed uh, uh, colleague who I, I trust implicitly and and if it was day one would would not hesitate for a second <laughs> to go into business with him um, Mr Christopher Brown. Um, and uh, as always, uh, I'd like to close out by thanking everyone who tuned in and listened to our podcast today. Uh, as always, uh, please don't hesitate for one nanosecond uh, to get in touch if uh, you have any questions which have come up because of uh, this podcast. Um, as I say, I, we will be putting down details um, for Jason and also for Chris um, when we publish this podcast on our website. Um, you can find more information about Hall & Wilcox on our website, which is uh, Hall & Wilcox, H-A-L-L-A-N-D-W-I-L-C-O-X.com.au uh, or uh, connect with us on LinkedIn. And uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, and I, I hope that you have, then please rate, review or follow our podcasts uh, through whatever channel you uh, get your podcasts from. Thank you once again and look forward to being with you next time. This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.